0: Happy New Year and thanks for tuning in to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We have big plans for 2022 as we approach our 100th episode this year, a great new project with longtime supporter of the Rewilding Institute Biohabitats, and more episodes with rewilding legends and leaders. To kick things off this season, I spoke with wildlife science master's student at Purdue University, Zach Finn. We talk about his work studying the reintroduction potential of the greater prairie chicken and Franklin's ground squirrel to an Indiana tall grass prairie. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. After reading a book as a teenager featuring species profiles and illustrations of recent human-caused extinctions, Zach Finn developed a passion to restore nature. Zach's become involved in various land trusts in his home state of Indiana, removing invasive species, helping with prescribed burns, and collecting prairie seeds for future prairie restorations. He also detrashes rivers on his canoe or on foot on various local trails. He's also incorporated his passion for ecological restoration in his graduate studies by assessing habitat suitability for potential species reintroductions, which happens to be our topic for today.
1: Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me on. My name is Zach Finn, and I'm a wildlife science master's student at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. I've had a lifelong passion for rewilding and ecological restoration, and I incorporated this passion into my graduate studies. What I did specifically was I modeled the potential for the reintroduction of two species to an Indiana tallgrass prairie. And these species are the greater prairie chicken and the Franklin's ground squirrel. And my my study area, my main area of focus was Kankakee Sands. It's a not a, a restoration, but it's a new grassland that was created after Beaver Lake was drained. Uh, Beaver Lake was once a part of the Grand Kankakee Marsh in northwest Indiana. But now it's a nature conservancy tall grass prairie property they have bison they have all kinds of animals on there like uh, bull snakes badgers buteo and occipiter raptors plains pocket gophers and then there are other grassland restorations surrounding that there's willow slough fish and wildlife area conrad savannah nature preserve beaver lake nature preserve and just across the border a few kilometers to the west in illinois there is the iroquois county state wildlife area and then to the northwest of all of these tallgrass prairie restorations, just to the northwest of those is a smaller collection of much smaller, but equally worthwhile and valiant effort to create a and piece together tallgrass prairie and what was once a large expanse of said habitat. So what I did for my modeling efforts was I, I hemmed and hawed trying to find out which modeling tactic I should use, and I went with an umbrella term known as species distribution modeling. What that is, it's just a term for the variety of methods for predicting species distributions. My specific method was the maximum entropy, abbreviated to Maxent, and that uses species locations, environmental data, and it attributes a distribution closest to uniform. That's just a fancy way to say maximum entropy, and that's under constraints of the averages of the environmental data. So sometimes numerical values are assigned to those environmental data, and it it works with those averages um, based upon species location data. I had some specific objectives related to this project. I wanted to see if I wanted to predict the suitability values for lex sites for the greater prairie chicken and um, just general location, like if Franklin's ground squirrel could occupy these habitats and i wanted to uh, predict that with a a pixelated you know binary zero for absence one for presence output format and a map so it's easily observable easily um, interpretable i took a next step and i provided logistical and operational information for the nature conservancy at kankakee sands for potential reintroduction of these two species i had my old prediction hypothesis i predicted that these these areas would be suitable for reintroduction or translocation of these species based upon the availability of habitats relative to the amount of habitats that these a population of these species would need.
0: What about the historical significance, the biological significance of these species before they got to the state of, it sounds like total extirpation from at least the study area, or, or what is the yeah. overall status and the specific status? Why why am
1: I focusing on these two species? The
0: Great prairie chicken,
1: pretty iconic grassland bird, and then one's lesser known, a Franklin's ground squirrel. I honestly hadn't heard of it before I went to Purdue and was doing my mammals ID lab. But both species, especially in the eastern portion of what was once, you know, a large expanse of tall grass prairie, this area is now largely converted to row crop agriculture and without habitat. Uh, a accompanied with some hunting, especially relevant to greater prairie chicken, these species have declined dramatically and are continuing to decline, but they're all but gone from the eastern portion of their range. And that includes Indiana, greater prairie chicken, arguably also Ohio, Missouri, Wisconsin. And they're continuing to drop in the eastern portion of the range because it's the most heavily farmed area um, from what was once tall grass prairie. Okay. So to, to get my animal data, I never had to go out into the field. I collected all these quote unquote collected these uh, data points from various natural heritage databases: Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Missouri. For Indiana, it was Franklin's ground squirrel only because we barely still have Franklin's ground squirrels; they're a state endangered mammal in in Indiana. And greater prairie chicken have been absent since the the 60s or 70s, roughly that time period, so 50 years or more. And I got all of my environmental data from the Natural Resources Conservation Service Geospatial Data Gateway. And I just picked a host of environmental GIS, uh, geographic information services, environmental data that I could plug into what's known as ArcGIS Pro. It's a, a mapping software, helped me to format these data layers so that way I could use it in my modeling program, Maxent. I just picked a, a bunch of land co- environmental variables, land cover, conservation easements, elevation, soils for Franklin's ground squirrel. I included a road density layer. Uh, railroads for Franklin's ground squirrel, transmission lines, wind turbines, Uh, that was another density layer, that was for greater prairie chicken. Uh, I used another measure of land cover, Uh, the other one was categorical, so each one was, each habitat type was separated into categories, Uh, whereas with the other one called moderate resolution imaging spectroradiometer, mouthful, but it can be abbreviated, abbreviated as MODIS, and that just uses satellite data blue to near infrared spectrum to assign numeric values based upon vegetative classes. And then I created another layer called slope from my elevation layer. And these are all biologically relevant environmental predictors relative to the species of interest. For my actual data analysis, I use Maxent. It's a free open source platform. Uh, It uses presence only modeling. So what that is, it, it uses known species location data And it doesn't rely on absence data, which is usually really expensive and time-consuming to collect. So in the absence of the absence data, it uses 10,000 pseudo-absence points, fake absence points. And um, what I did to decrease sampling bias, because it's really difficult to sample every single area of habitat, I generated these points in just those areas of habitat based upon that land cover layer which is grassland and marshes and stuff and so what maxent does it predicts a relative likelihood of species occurrence and that is directly proportional to true occupancy probability, which is why it's useful. And then I developed a series of models inspired by another paper, Hovec et al, 2015. They performed this work on greater prairie chickens in Kansas. I did a universal model, incorporated all variables, environmental model, all natural variables, anthropogenic modus, included human-related variables with the modus land cover, and then all humanoid variables with land cover for my final model anthropogenic land cover and then uh, there's statistical jargony model evaluations area under the curve scores and 10th percentile training presence threshold omission error rates binomial testing just to see if my models perform better than than random chance and then i concluded with making maps of this these max and outputs so that way we could see what's going on in in the landscape of interest
0: so what kind of story is this trying to tell? Uh, what did you find that surprised you? What did you find that sounds hopeful for bringing these species back to areas that they're extirpated or, or almost extirpated from? What, what did you find out from all of this?
1: So after collecting all these data from online sources and natural heritage databases, I I ran my models. I I had to filter through those species location points in order to ensure independence of my observations. So that way, one is too close to one another, it's not counting. It's not violating foundational statistical assumption of independence of data, which means assuming each data point is its own point and no two are actually the same. Um, So what I found out from my universal model and my from my of my cohort of greater prairie chicken models was that the majority of Kankakee Sands is suitable for sites, as well as some areas of nearby Willow Slough Fish and Wildlife Area in the Southwest, some areas as well in Illinois, Iroquois County State Wildlife Area, and some of the smaller habitat patches to the Northwest of all this, as well as the other smaller, like Conrad Savannah and and Beaver Lake Nature Preserve could have some greater prairie chicken leks as well, as well as, interestingly, some agricultural fields. My major professor has observed in Illinois that greater prairie chickens there will leave the grassland habitat and establish lex in the open, unplanted ag field. And they'll do this because it's more visibility, greater sound travel. But lexite site selection, it's, it's heavily related to where hens select for nest sites and brood rearing habitat. Um, that is that is where greater prairie chickens will pick Lex is the proximity to these other habitat types. But for the Franklin's ground squirrel, I didn't have a lot of data. And so my results were largely inconclusive, predicted high probabilities of occurrence through, throughout a lot of the landscape, even though none of my models performed better than random chance. So basically it's like, take that with a grain of salt. But the, the exciting um, results that I obtained were for the greater prairie chicken.
0: Got it. So what made it unwelcome area for them? Was it just being hunted out? Or was it more agriculture, which now it doesn't sound like that might be the case, given what you just talked about? What would happen if we just put them back? We can't do that without some changes on the ground, I would imagine, right? Well, largely
1: they disappeared from this area because of habitat loss to agriculture. Uh, There was some hunting. I believe they had large quantities of them being shipped eastward, much like the passenger pigeons. But largely it was habitat loss. These kanky sands used to be beaver lake. Which is in the Grand Canyon Marsh, and it was drained. Uh, they didn't try to; they weren't trying to drain it entirely, but uh, it happened anyways. And that was in 1870s. And then uh, eventually, in 1997, Nature Conservancy bought the property and then began creating tall grass prairie and, and, and some wetland habitats in what was once Beaver Lake. And in the 1960s, I believe, nature uh, the Beaver Lake Nature Preserve already existed there was some grassland habitat left and there were some adjacent leks in the ag fields next to beaver lake nature preserve which had in it um, the greater prairie chicken reserve but the existing leks that remained one of of the last few in the state never found that habitat so um, they just died off eventually and and there are some remnant lone greater prairie chickens scattered throughout the state until eventually they just lived out their lives or got run over by cars or predated or,
0: or what have you. So what would, what would Nature Conservancy then do with the findings of yours and other studies that are surely pointing to, uh, at least in general, the same direction, suitable habitat or it's suitable for them to be here? But uh, Nature Conservancy luckily has the ability to do a lot of work on their own lands that they manage is that where it starts are they going to use this data to justify reintroduction how do you work with them out now that your study is done
1: well when i started my master's program i was talking with my major professor and he we were trying to figure out you know what the heck am i going to do what am i going to research and so we reached out to the staff at kankakee sands of nature conservancy and talked with them like, hey, Zach is interested in modeling the potential for greater prairie chicken reintroduction at Kankakee Sands. Does that sound like something you guys would be interested in? And they said, yes. Um, there's also this other species, it's ground squirrel. Can you model potential for that too? And I said, well, I love all animals. So yeah, yeah I'll do that. <laughs> and so I'm currently talking with them. They have expressed interest and reintroducing these species to that site, but so far nothing conclusive. Like yes, we're, we are going to do this, but they they are definitely interested in it, and I, I I believe my model results would help them in being more assured that of reintroducing these animals would be possible.
0: Yeah, well, and it's nice also, you know, just for TNC to be involved in the way and have the ability, have the land and everything to kind of jumpstart this. And show other uh like private landowners and others that it can be done, it it is being done. Sometimes that has a a catalyst effect. And then and nature conservancy knows that. That's why they do these things. So <laughs> so that's really cool. And that'd be really cool to have that as a as a, a legacy. I mean, you contributed to that greatly by being able to give them the science that shows what should be happening on the ground, what happened. To, I think that's really cool. And I also think that. It'd be really neat to um, just kind of check in later, and, and uh, you're kind of always going to be attached to this project, right? It's going to be it's going to be something that you know somebody might come and interview you about two, three, four years from now, twenty years from now. I dug up your study, and now that there now there's all these prairie chickens in this area that weren't before, and and yours was one of the studies cited to, that uh, obviously helped to make that happen. That's pretty cool. I mean, you're you're kind of getting started in a career that it's got meaningful written all over it. How does that make you feel?
1: Uh, that was definitely the goal, and that's definitely something I mentioned. I talked about with my major professor and said, hey, is this going to have real? Does this have potential to have real world results? He said, "Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes me feel great. And uh, you know, Kankakee Sands has always had a special place in my heart, and I, I will always keep checking back on it to see what's going on in there because they're doing some exciting work."
0: It's also really cool to be able to show listeners who might not know, you know, how does how does the science and the conservation and the and you know, kind of the PR stuff, the political stuff, how does all of this Sync up, and especially from your perspective, then you know it has to start with something. I mean, Nature Conservancy has to say we had a modeling done for these two species, and this is our this is why we're going to do this. This is why we're going to make choices about reintroduction and things in the future. Here's what we want to do. They have to base it on something. And and I wanted to give everybody an example of what that's like. A student like you working your butt off, learning while you're doing. And then coming out with a product that has real world value that probably would have cost a bunch more if it was done by a private consulting firm. And, you know, but it was part of your education and, and a great, great product to uh, then take and, and change things on the ground. And I want to show people that, how do you feel about being a cog in that whole very, very important system? That's
1: what I want more than anything. It's, Uh, what is needed in order to rewild the earth and um, it's what i'm going to do
0: you're listening to the rewilding earth podcast did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars poets artists and organizers from around the world you can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant fresh insights on everything rewilding You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at Rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. So, what are your future plans looking like? Like, what, uh, where do you go from here?
1: Right now, what, what I'm looking at is being a land steward. So um, that's like a land trust. They they own a bunch of natural areas, and they'll go in and restore them. They'll uh, plant species that used to be there or they'll take out invasive species, and I used to work for a, a local land trust around here, and that's the closest I've ever felt to nature, and um, right now, that's, that's what I think I want to do after I graduate. Awesome. But other areas of interest, I, I'd like to work on uh, reintroduction projects. Specifically, I'm especially passionate about large carnivores especially being from indiana recent news that black black bears have more and more been coming into southern indiana and, and sometimes down from michigan it's um given me a lot of hope for my state and as well i, I could work at a zoo and uh, work with the uh, captive populations of endangered animals but right now i want to be out there in the field and i want to be kicking ass um, of these invasive species
0: yeah you said you mentioned something a little earlier about slope and one of the issues this might not be the same slope we're talking about, but one of the issues that's been identified in our Big River Connectivity Project funded by be Wild Rewild is the idea of stopping farming in certain areas that it's really not even profitable to farm in and without okay. subsidies would would definitely not be the floodplains is that is that what you were kind of talking about like where we could kind of start to reclaim and work with farmers who would really rather not use those lands in that way if they had another choice which is what we're trying to do is give them another choice an even a profitable one if at all possible or with land grant grants and and other programs from the government that would help them to be able to profitably, not farm those areas would that help in the prairie chicken or the or, or the the squirrel would it would you know those those elevations and those and, and those angles really those degrees is that what you were talking about in slope as part of your study
1: well what i was thinking of in terms of including slope turns out through my literature reviews that hens sometimes will nest on slopes because it provides greater visibility to protect their nests and lexite site selection, which is a proxy for greater prairie chickens uh, in terms of reintroductions or uh, populations in general, because it involves more than one prairie chicken. Lex sites are selected based on nest site habitat and broodering habitat. So if you stopped farming marginal habitat on slopes and instead planted grasslands, that's more areas where nearby there could be more lek
0: sites. Right. Well, then that would be really important if we could, if we could take the pressure off those slopes, the steepest of them. It it just seems like a really good place to start. I mean, you grew up in Indiana, you know what farming means in this part of the country and, and it's everywhere. I mean, you know, until we learned better as kids, we just thought that was the wild. I mean, that was as much of the wild world as we ever saw until we didn't. Right. So it's just corn and beans, two crops, um, and whatever it takes to serve those two crops up every single year, every single season, and uh, everything else be damned—and not just figuratively, but literally—there's a really serious dam problem too, <laughs> all over. Yeah. But taking that pressure off is is got to be creatively done, given that you know how the farming community is, and typically their relationship with conservationists and scientists, uh, conservation biologists, and and scientists that kind of are like, hey, man, we got to we gotta do this. They come at it in a kind of combative way. And I've learned a lot about this in talking with Ross Gipple and, and Mark Edwards in Iowa. It's always a contentious relationship. It has been historically. And we need to get rid of that because there's an awful lot of common ground, I believe, that can be had between the farming community. These are personal family-owned farms, which is a lot more than people think. Everybody thinks it's all industrial agriculture now there's a lot of family farms out there. And there are a lot. And when you hear those people talk, and you'll know, right, when I say this, you've recognized this conversation. They, in their own way, care a lot about the land. They care about what they're leaving. They talk about legacy. Corporations never do this, of course. Those are just managers trying to get the stock price up or whatever. But the people who own the land, who work the land, we can work with them. And I think I mean, has any part of your study or or people that you've worked with, people in school doing, you know, more of the sociological study uh, of all of this, how much of that rings true for you and how much hope do you feel like there is uh, there? Because we're not dealing with public land here for a lot of this. It's private land. And so we're going to have to learn new ways to work with private landowners when we see an area that's terraced, that's really, really steep. And without the terraces, there's no way to farm that to say, man, maybe we can take those down. Here's a program we might take advantage of and all of that. I mean, we have to bridge that gap in order to make some of the stuff that you found in your study come to life, right?
1: Yes. 60% of all land in the United States is privately owned. And there's that means there's huge potential that can be unlocked through working with private landowners. Recently, in one of my classes, we talked about how you can humanize the issue of climate change with farmers and politicians and so on by bringing in stories from other farmers who are actually affected by the weather changes, like uh, one farmer, all his fields getting flooded. And then you introduce these people and they tell their story to the person who doesn't believe or doesn't accept the facts of climate change and doesn't care. And then they're like, oh, wow, this is, this is a, something that's actually affecting people. And maybe I should do something about that too.
0: Yeah, I think when they see conservationists coming, there's an immediate and a well-earned shutting down like, oh, God, I'm not talking to these guys. I'm not doing this. And that's why we started this program and our conservation, our coexistence coordinator that was just hired and and it's going to be based out of Des Moines, Kelly Borgman comes from Indiana too. You would recognize her energy immediately as an Indiana boy, you you'd recognize her. <laughs> She's just tons and tons of energy. She knows about farming. You can't you can't go over the top of her head about farming topics of any kind. She go, grew up in a farming family and and is just a super great energetic organizer. So that's going to be that's that kind of stuff's going to be really crucial too. Because we have to start to learn how to bridge that gap. There's no way. We can't just rely here. In other rewilding network designs, you've got like a giant national park, like Rocky Mountain National Park or the Adirondacks or or something like that to start with as a core area. And of course, as you know, we don't have that here. You know, Kankakee Sands is not on the scale of what we're used to dealing with in the, in the other parts of the country for at least we can get a start with, okay, this species is thriving somewhat here but has no connectivity to these other sky islands. And we really need to do something about that because genetic diversity is getting, you know, just watered. Uh, They're just not able to do the movement that they want. So I like the idea of the work that you're doing and that school's doing, the nature conservancy is doing in an area that we as a movement or an organization uh, in an industry, whatever you want to call a conservation movement here in the Midwest, we've just, you can't use the same tools that you can, you don't have these great big population centers in some of these places to beat people over the head and say, this is what you will do, or have federal legislation that just comes from on high and says, this is what you will do. You know, we that'll never fly in this part. And we don't have to do it that way. I mean, like, well, when you did go out and you did some field stuff, I mean, you had to work with some or be in contact or in the proximity of some private landowners were you surprised at how conservation-minded some were or how much they knew that you wouldn't assume that they, they necessarily know about? Because, I mean, they have their profession, you have yours, conservationists have theirs, and everybody, you know, kind of stays in that lane, you think. But I've, I've learned that a lot of these guys really know a lot. They have a land ethic, and, they, and some of them sound like they've read all the Leopold thoroughly and, and often.
1: There was one farmer I I was exposed to and, and got to hear some of his personal land ethic. It was my wildlife techniques class or wildlife habitat management, one of those. And we went out and we went to some of his, his land in Tippecanoe County outside of the Purdue University campus. And he showed us his, his wind farm that he had wind turbines installed on his land. So, he, uh, you know, he gets money for that, but he, he talked about how he also cared about you know, the power of renewable energy. It's controversial because of the these uh, kill birds and bats, but renewable energy is important. So he, he valued that, but he also participated in the farm bill program, uh, conservation reserve program. You sign a, a contract with the government to restore a portion of your farmland to grassland for a certain amount of time. And he had two or three of these properties where he, he would go out and he would do prescribed burns and, and monitor the species on on that site, on those sites. And um, he's the one who planted these grasslands and took care of them and they became his grasslands. And we could tell through listening to him talk that he really cared about uh, the work that he was doing.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think that's one of the real rewards awaiting people like Kelly. And she already knows because she's done work like this before in other areas. It's really rewarding to be able to hear and then it also kind of exposes you to how little you get to do the on-the-ground work and know about the the science of their work. It's like, well, you you actually are the alpha here because this is your land. You know exactly every drop that flows through it and where it comes from of water. You know all the everything about it. And then you start to hear them opening them up about it, ways that they obviously love their land. And, but they're farmers too, and they have a business and, and how all that goes together. I think a lot of conservationists could learn a lot from that kind of exposure, because I think on both sides, we've developed boogeymen that don't exist, that aren't really, they're political footballs and they're not real on the ground. When you meet with people on the ground and you find, holy cow, we have a lot in common. You're not nearly the you know, big, bad wolf that everybody Mm -hmm. (laughs) says that you are. And they they get that same vibe from us too. It's like, yeah, you, you don't sound like conservationists I thought would sound from what I read in the papers. And, you know, (laughs) so I think that's really cool. And it's studies like yours, the work that, that people like you are doing that lend all the credibility. It's like, well, who's really looked at this? Let's stop talking about, man, there used to be prairie chickens here and we need them back. What does that even mean? And now you're giving context to that with your kind of research, which is vital and really, really cool. I mean, whatever you end up doing and the whole path that you take, you know, you're always going to have that jumping off point. And I think it's just really cool to get to talk to somebody who's just at the beginning of all of this stuff and just imagining where you might go from here and and all the effect you're going to have going forward.
1: Uh, Jack, I wanted to read a couple paragraphs from The Round River by Aldo Leopold, the father of wildlife management, which I feel is highly relevant to my work, significance of my work, as well as the significance of involving farmers in conservation projects, especially in the prairie region and in the heartland of the United States. American conservation is, I fear, still concerned for the most part with showpieces. We have not yet learned to think in terms of small cogs and wheels. Look at our own backyard at the prairies of Iowa and Southern Wisconsin. What is the most valuable part of the prairie? The fat black soil, the chernozem. who built the chernozem? The black prairie was built by the prairie plants, a hundred distinctive species of grasses, herbs, and shrubs by the prairie fungi, insects, and bacteria, by the prairie mammals and birds, all interlocked in one humming community of, co- of cooperations and competitions, one biota. This biota, through 10,000 years of living and dying, burning and growing, praying and fleeing, freezing and thawing, built that dark and bloody ground we call prairie. Someday we may need this prairie flora not only to look at, but to rebuild the wasting soil of prairie farms. Many species may then be missing. We have our hearts in the right place, but we do not yet recognize the small cogs and wheels.
0: I love that. Yeah, and it's almost like the, uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of weird. Of all the podcasts we've done, this is the first uh, Leopold reading we've had. And I'm really excited that you're the one who got to do it. (laughs) That's (laughs) really cool. And you're the one who thought to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's so true. And, And I think that when people get away from politics and they get, you know, also out of their labs, everybody gets really deep into things that once you get out there, all melt away in terms of their importance. Most of the things that we do talk about, think about strategy, how we do our science, how we do our communications, all of that, as you know, just melts completely away. It doesn't matter. It's the whoever you're with, whoever you're talking to in the land around you or the water that Brings everything into a sharper focus, like Aldo Leopold was always so good at doing, such as that example there, really bringing it back to what's actually important and getting it away from all of those things. And I, I've always had the theory that the reason he was able to do that so eloquently is that he spent so much time with the land and didn't get too caught up in a, in a bunch of other stuff that's just not related, just not you know the day-to-day junk. And a lot of writers you could point to, I think uh, the same way, but that must, that must just smack you in the face, remembering that and, and reading that, you know, just, just in terms of the grounding, no pun intended, that it has the effect that it has.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's always a good feeling to have your work validated by uh, a founder of uh, the field you're working in.
0: Yeah. He'd be proud. And I, I really get excited when I think about people who are still trying to decide what they want to do, what direction they want to go in that are, you know, a few years behind you and listening to this and maybe making a decision. What what have you learned about your path so far that you would turn around and recommend to a high school senior, how they might best, if they're interested in this and they love your story and they want to do this kind of work, what could help them along uh, that you learned along the way, maybe the hard way? The
1: obvious uh, in high school, take your biology courses or your, your wildlife related courses, uh, when you're looking for universities to go to pick one with good zoology zoology track or uh, like with purdue university actually have a wildlife biology program other programs as well fisheries and aquatic sciences and forestry and that's all in the department of forestry and natural resources so look for programs like that that'll get you the foundation and, and knowledge you need in order to enter the field other than that say you do want to go out there and, and tackle invasive species find a local land trust there's there's tons of them uh, go out and do a volunteer day with them or educate yourselves on invasive species in your area and if you have your own little woodlot or nearby patch of woods or if you see in your yard that hey that bush is invasive uh, I'm gonna take it out is that okay mom or dad you know just take those little small steps and it'll make you feel like you're accomplishing something because you truly are nobody's gonna go out there and and do this we can't just sit around and and hope and pray that that somebody else is going to do it It, it's got to be us because we're the only ones that care and and especially we're the only ones that care enough to act Uh, other things you could do yeah i go out and i take my canoe down the river and i look for tires and i it doesn't matter how entrenched they are in the riverbed i'm getting those tires out if i see it those are all that much fewer microplastics that are infecting our our waterways and making their way down into the the gulf of mexico from from where i'm at uh, getting into our oceans i feel like one part of rewilding that's overlooked is trash removal you go out and you're canoeing down a river and you see all this garbage it doesn't feel very wild does it it kind of takes you back to man-made landscapes and just go out there remove some invasive species get involved with your local land trust or just pick some trash out of the river or uh, if you see trash along a trail, just take that out. It, it, it would definitely improve the immersion experience. It,
0: I mean, what would you say to somebody who says, yeah, but I mean, I want to do that and I try to do that, but I always think about the fact that I take out a tire and two more got dumped up river or down river. And it's like one step forward, one step back or trash or, or whatever. Or, I mean, is there some sort of a, a, an extra reason that you do this regardless of whether somebody's dumping twice as much as you just took out that day? I mean, is it like a spiritual thing? Is it like a, like a deep ecology thing? Cause it sounds like you would do it no matter what, and you are doing it no matter what.
1: For me, yes. It's, it's a spiritual aspect. It's, how I um, make myself uh, feel useful, especially in, in our field when I'm, I'm not actually entered fully in it yet uh, on a professional level. Just because somebody somebody out, else out there, the boogeyman, is doing that doesn't mean that we shouldn't clean it up. The population becomes more and more educated and resources change. Hopefully, we, we won't have to worry about people dumping trash into the rivers anymore. It's a good idea to stay on top of it.
0: Yeah. Well said. Well, Zach, I Thank really you. appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations, by the way, on all your work and defending your thesis you. and, and, and 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 the excitement um, that I don't generally get to have all the time here. I've talked to a lot of people in the mid and, and later years of their careers, and I love talking to people who are just getting things figured out for themselves and really having these new, fresh experiences and are obviously as motivated as you are. So I can't wait to see what what comes of uh, your next moves. And I'm sure we will be in touch because you're never going to be very far away from the work that we're doing at Rewilding and all of our partner organizations. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, for sure. Thank you, Jack. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.